Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. The Athletic. We said that the Saxon Ring weekend would be rather revealing about Mark Marquez and Honda's situation together, but I don't think we saw this level of mayhem coming. Mark Marquez crashed five times, didn't even make the Grand Prix itself, and sent some very curious gestures towards his Honda after some of those incidents, and had a spat with Johan Zarco, and then kind of wandered off without speaking to anyone when the Grand Prix that he's dominated for so long was just about to start. Uh, I'm Matt Beer. This is the Race MotoGP podcast. I'm joined by Simon Patterson in the Saxon Ring press room and Val Harunchi. We're going to mostly talk about one man and one team for this podcast, I think, this week, or rather one brand at least, because yeah, we said Mugello last weekend was a story of Mark Marquez off track and Ducati on track, and then Saxon Ring was was that amplified by about 100. Um Simon, what's going to stick in your mind most from this weekend? Marquez's antics or uh, or what Ducati got up to on track? I mean, down the line, whenever it comes to it in two or three or whatever years from now, we won't remember. We will remember this weekend probably as another step in what's probably going to be a Ducati championship win. But we're going to remember it as the weekend where Mark Marquez left Honda. Ah, wow. That- that, that's how important and how significant this weekend is. This is the weekend where he tells Repsol Honda to stuff it and starts looking for something else because it, it, to call it bad is like understanding it by an order of magnitude. It was catastrophic. It was horrendous. The bike tried to kill him five times. He tried to kill you on Zarco. Nothing worked. And this is, you know, if he can't do that, if he can't do anything at Saxon Ring, there's no point in even turning up for the rest of the season. It's over. The year's over. The, the fact that mesmerizes me the most is the moment where he flipped off the Honda RC213V after it nearly spat him off was zero crashes. None of the crashes have happened yet. <laughs> no. They, they threatened to happen. It was not the first moment of, of, his, of his practice. I think there were two other major moments where it sort of risks chucking him off. And then finally, that one was a big one. And, uh, you know, whether it was a message or whatever, or just, you know, looking down at the thing and going, ha still got you. And I mean, he was not, he was not triumphant. He was really mad. But that was before. Then he crashed it. Then he crashed it three times in qualifying. Then he crashed it in Sunday uh, morning warm-up. Then he was done. It defeated him. Uh, He was beaten by it. He was beaten by it in all sorts of very different ways. He became something of a nervy wreck. He had to basically throw the the white flag in in the the sprint. And then once he tried to build himself up for, for the race, got chucked off of it again. And he got defeated in the in the understanding that there was no point in in racing. I'm not sure if he like he was past fit to ride, so he, if you know if important points were in the line, he probably would have done it. You get the feeling almost certainly. Uh, we joked in in work chat that yeah, I joked that I'm surprised that he didn't slip Doctor Ankle Charte a 
a tenor to declare him unfit. And that was before he pulled out of the weekend anyway, because, you know, that was where it was going to head. Maybe he could have brought it home in 10th, 11th today, but he ran out of trust. He, I guess he didn't even maybe trust himself to hold himself back enough to definitely finish. He says he's coming back from, for Assen. I mean, yeah, he, I, I suspect he is, but we're running out of time here. We're running out of episodes and it's just, it was a, an unspeakably shocking weekend because even beyond all the crashes also, it just wasn't very fast. He was fast enough in a vacuum, but Marquez level at the Saxon ring, he was not there. He was not winning that race, even if he stayed on the bike all throughout, which is, it's crazy. When you think back to Mark Marquez's MotoGP history, and especially his history in MotoGP with injuries, him being declared fit and not riding, as opposed to being declared unfit and trying everything he can to ride, is just the complete opposite of everything we've come to expect from him. And that, more than anything, says, you know, to me, it says everything about the situation. I think the, the most telling and the most powerful TV pictures of the week were the shots of him immediately after the, the fifth and final crash during warm-up, where you know we, we saw him crash, for context, we saw him crash in qualifying, and he jumped back in a scooter before uh, Johan Zarco had even rolled to a stop and was back in the pits before the red flag went out, basically, to end the session. He crashed in warm-up this Sunday morning, and he just sat at the side of the track. And it, it partly looked like he was a bit dazed and rattled because of of the crash and like you know big bang to the head for another time this weekend but another part of it just looked like someone that was trying to to like pull together the willpower to walk back to the honda garage and and decide what to do next because he's just out of options there's just no nothing left for him to try to do the bike's not getting any better there's no mad tricks to try there's no new stunts to try there's no new components and and you know, it's been like this for, what, a year and a half now? There was a report, I think, coming into the weekend from our Spanish colleagues at Motorsport Spain, I want to say, that contained a line that uh, there were people in Marcus's camp who, seeing what happened to Alex Rins and Juan Mir, were consistently worried that basically Mark was next in line, that he was basically awaiting another career-altering career or more career-impacting injury. And he's, you know, publicly he's not said that, and I don't think he's he's been writing the way that really corroborated it. Like in qualifying, he clearly was not afraid of crashing over and over and over again. But on Friday, before the crashes came, uh, Taka Nakagami got chucked off coming through uh, the waterfall corner, I think, at quite a significant speed. As we found out later, his hand got trapped under the bike, so his poor suffering finger got injured some more. Although, although thankfully nothing more serious go as he you know as he finished the weekend at okay pace but the the TV direction knew what he was doing because you know they cut to mark and you could see mark's face and you could see him watching the crash and pointing towards it and you know a face clearly either very worried or very angry but certainly not serene in the least uh, the you know the much 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 more sour version of that once upon a time in Hollywood meme that already came up on this podcast earlier. And, you know, at that point, you know, armchair psychology and all that, but 
there are a lot of moments like that this weekend where you know you try to you try to read what's going on behind the eyes and none of the answers you're giving yourself are are any good or particularly positive I mean, and we kind of got the flip side of that after Sunday's race because Nakagami admitted that he was cruising around and not pushing because he was right behind Marquez when he had that big high side during uh, morning warm-up and he said it scared him. He said he knew he was in the same bike and he knew the bike was going to try and do it to him as well. So he just cruised around in the race. And, and you know, there was an, definitely an element of the same thing uh, from what happened in the sprint race on Saturday with Marquez. I asked him straight up after the race if he'd been you know, pushing, if he'd given up, and he pretty much said, yeah, he went back to the truck between qualifying and the sprint and, and just threw in the towel, said he knew he'd be going out to cruise around and not to push, because if he pushed, the bike would try and kill him. Just to put into context, for any, any listeners who are relatively new to MotoGP, just how incredible Marquez's Saxon ring record has been up till now you know he was a he was twice a winner there or three times a winner there across one two five cc and moto two so three straight wins before getting into moto gp the first seven years of his moto gp career he's unbeaten at that circuit germany's missing in 2020 due to covid 2021 marquez wins his first race of that injury comeback there at a time when he really wasn't properly fully fit and honda wasn't that competitive but he still won that race in 2021 Last year, he missed it for injury absence number, I don't know, three or four for that particular saga. So given all that, when we were talking at the start of this year, we were almost flippantly saying, you know, Honda's not looking great. Marquez is going to be a bit desperate this year, but obviously he'll win Austin. He'll win the Saxon ring. Austin, he wasn't even at due to yet yet another injury problem. And then this weekend was just so far off winning. But still, during the the sprint on Saturday, I, I said to both of you that what was happening was the outcome... I did not predict by any means. I was thinking after qualifying, after that desperate qualifying effort of throwing the bike down the road again and again and running back and having bits nicked off Joanne Mir's parked bike to make the bike work again, I was thinking Marquez is at least somewhere near the front of the grid. He's either going to win this against every imaginable odd or he's going to take about six riders down with him at the first corner. What I absolutely did not see coming at all was him trundling backwards down the field, you know, f- trying to fight off a as slightly broken at the moment Maverick Vinales and Fabio Di Giantonio who's pretty much lost his ride for next year that was where he ended up and it just when you came came online during his debrief Simon said basically he's admitted he wasn't even trying in that race it was like that makes sense but that is what I least expected from Mark Marquez it was a it was uncharted territory really yeah but it's, it's it was a whole weekend of that it was just sort of adjusting your expectations to the facts in front of you rather than the Marcus Saxon ring memories that you have in your head. Even on Friday, it looked sketch. In terms of the lap times we saw, it was already pretty clear that, oh, it's not going to happen. Then, you know, it rained a bit at the start of Q1. And, you know, when on that sort of mixed weather track before it properly dried out, Mark was a second quicker than everybody else. And there's a part of me that was like, okay, so this is how it happens this year. He maybe doesn't fully have it in the dry, but, you know, Saxon Ring weather is going to do him a solid. This is how he'll win. Then he didn't win. He had, he had no chance of winning. He was never going to win anything. Uh, started the sprint. He gave it a good go at the start, but immediately a couple of moments there. And I think lap three, you see him fighting and you see him go wide at turn one and you know it's over. Like, that's the point where, you know, it's not going to let him do this. And maybe he realized it completely in that moment, maybe even earlier. But from there on, it was just like, how bad can this get rather than what he, can he salvage? And he 
I mean, you couldn't salvage anything. Salvage no points from this from this from this weekend. Uh, got a, another Q two, which he's been really good at getting. He's been really good at maximizing, you know, one lap opportunities. But they don't give points for one lap opportunities in MotoGP right now. So, I mean, so I, I've been here since 2016, and I've seen a lot of Mark Marquez. And I've seen him beaten many times. Um, I've seen him looking pretty low after, you know, after the arm injury at Hareth in 2020, after the, you know, he announced at Mugello in 2022 that he needed more surgery. I've never seen him look completely defeated before. Uh, and that was the mood of this weekend. He, he looked defeated. He just looked like a balloon that someone had put a pin into. Um, and, and, you know, I started this podcast by saying that this is the weekend where he leaves Honda. I wasn't being flippant. I, I genuinely do believe that the damage this weekend has done to him and to his relationship with the brand is so severe that I just can't see a way back from this because I don't see how they can repair this bike into something usable for him in the course of, of essentially three months. Because, that, you know, that's the timeline now that he also, before the weekend even started, that was the timeline that he kind of floated that we're going to Misano to test after the race in mid-September, and that's where there has to be a 2024 bike. And, you know, I know he has 2024 on his contract, but if we get to that point and the bike is still useless when he jumps on it there, then he is immediately going to walk out of that test and go to KTM and Aprilia and Ducati and, and start talking about what they want to do with him for 2025. There's just there has to be no other option because this is a guy who we know is so so hungry to win, who believes that he lost three years of his career due to injury sustained in Hareth 2020 and all the subsequent nonsense that came from it, and you know all of that while while none of that is something that he blames Honda for, you have to think that the more resentful that he's getting with the current state of the Honda, the more it's going to start creeping into his mind that they're the ones that pushed him out to ride when he wasn't maybe ready to ride in Hareth 2020. You know, all of that negativity, negativity breeds negativity. Um, and I, I just, I think it's a completely downward spiral from here until the point where he announces he's heading somewhere else. We, you know, no Alberto Puig on, on site this weekend. So it almost weirdly felt like radio silence from Honda while it's having the worst MotoGP weekend you can imagine without serious injuries, yeah. So it's like... There was nothing almost about it. There was no Honda statement from anyone post-race. Yeah. So, you know, there's one one side of the equation where you have Yamaha bosses and technical department publicly apologizing between before Marikine Alice and Dante and Rossi. That was ridiculous. But obviously so is this. Things are collapsing. This is... You have to do something, anything, and I, you know, I know they've they've done plenty. You know, they've they've brought in Ken Kawauchi. Obviously, they've you know they've made the German manufacturer Calix make one of their chassis for for Mark to crash over and over again, and Juan to crash. But it's not like the standard Honda isn't being also crashed by a bunch of riders. So it's look, it's easy to say they've not been trying, and I'm not going to say that. I you know even in this clearly not good bike there's you know blood sweat and tears being put in but at some point you have to be harsh and say i don't even i don't want to see it on the grid anymore this year is that does that sound insane 
I don't like this. I don't like watching this. Good riders are crashing this thing over and over and over again. Uh, you know, yellow flags over and over and over. Injuries over and over. Uh, it is, you know, it is an entirely possible proposition. If a couple of the crashes went a little bit different, that we would have no Honda riders fit for Assen. Obviously, all injury situations are circumstantial, but this is ridiculous. And they're not stupid riders. I don't... I'm a little puzzled as to how it happened so quickly because, you know, the bike was slow and it was crash-prone, but it wasn't this. It's it's such a, such a fascinating situation to the point where I... Honestly, my big thesis, and it's still this, coming out of the weekend, is... The timeline is wrong for Honda and Marquez. I don't understand what their joint future is because Mark wants to win now. He said coming into the coming into the weekend that the four-year Honda deal was intended to bring four titles, which is a striking thing to admit after the fact when it's going to bring none. It's something you could say in advance coming out of 2019, but to admit it now, you know, it's quite different. Um, the, the timelines are wrong. Honda needs a root and branch rebuild. And they need to do it outside of the pressure of one of the greatest riders of all time being desperate to squeeze out more silverware while the time is still on his side. I mean, he's not that old, but by MotoGP standards, he is one of the elder statesmen now. He is in a win-now mode. Honda cannot be. You said that there's blood, sweat and tears have gone into this bike. But, man, the problem is there's, there's also that Honda arrogance going into the bike. Um, I think part of the reason why it's gotten so difficult, so aggressive this year, is that they, they've done a kind of a knee-jerk reaction and built a more powerful engine and put it into the frame that they already had in an attempt to keep up with Ducati, because that's what Ducati are good at, and it's made the bike completely unrideable, because we know that their electronics aren't perfect, um, and we know that they're kind of struggling to manage the bike. Um, I bumped into a Moto2 rider this afternoon after their race, and we got talking about Marquez's crash. And he said, well, well, if that had been a Ducati, the traction control would have caught that. That crash would never have been allowed to happen by Ducati's electronics. But the Honda electronics, he was like, yeah, of course it happened. It's a typical Honda crash. And then the other side of things is, you know, we, we know that they built this, that they bought in this Calyx chassis and that they've outsourced, you know, a significant amount of their engineering work. But I was speaking to someone this afternoon who spoke to someone at Calix and has been told that Calix have got not a single word of feedback on what the new chassis is doing for the riders. So, you know, they've gone and got someone with expertise to come and build them a frame. And then they've just said, OK, thanks for your work. Bye. There's obviously no further plans for development with Calix if they're not giving them feedback. And if there is, it's going to be feedback that comes half-arsed and down the line and, and without you know them being the guys who built the bike being involved in the building of the bike. It's just, yeah, I, I don't understand. I don't understand the direction that they're taking, but I also don't understand the reason why they're taking that direction because you would think at this point that they are doing anything and everything that they can to try and make the situation better. It doesn't seem like they are. There's obviously a lot to criticise in how Honda's managed the last few years. And 
the, the decisions basically high up that have, have led to this situation and this uncompetitive bike with these particular problems. Um, our, our boss, Glenn Freeman, made a point in our work chat the other day when we were talking about this, the state of things for Marquez and Honda that probably people are being a little bit too generous to Marquez in all this as well. And, you know, okay, he was in a uniquely frustrating situation given what was, what's been going on in his career and his ambitions right now and, and how uncompetitive the bike is. But actually there are people working extremely hard to put this bike on the grid every week and he's either smashing it to pieces repeatedly or as of this weekend, kind of giving up with it. And surely, this is, I've made clear on this podcast quite a few times what a kind of overall Marquez fan I am, how much admiration I've got for the kind of weight of his career achievements. I genuinely think he's the greatest MotoGP rider of all time and that no one else in any form of motorsport was as impressive across the 2010s. Matt's now officially banned from Italy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I got my honeymoon in there first a couple of years ago before saying that on the record anyway, so all good. Um, but yeah, I, uh, this, this weekend particularly, I've, I've started to think, I just I don't think I like Marquez's handling of this situation now. I sympathise, but I, I don't actually particularly rate how he's dealing with this. I think there are better ways... Where do you two stand on on actually how Marquez is is riding? I'll caveat that with saying that these these performances to get the bike as fast as it goes in qualifying are still absolutely amazing. But aside outside of those one laps, I'm just thinking no, you need to actually find a way to to just stop smashing this thing up now because that must be possible. I've gone the other way weirdly because that was I think that was the point I was sort of pretty happy to make before this weekend because I I felt genuinely it had he just calmed himself down a little bit for the start of the season because of all the problems that everybody else was having he would be sitting on a pretty good haul of points right now because of you know all the opportunities Peko Banyaya left on the table because of all of the you know because of Yamaha no longer existing as a concept because of Aprilia refusing to score points just do not want them will not take them even if you offer them there were points to grab through his you know, qualifying opportunism and superior level of understanding of the bike compared to the other Honda riders. And Alex Rins at the Circuit of the Americas showed what was up for grabs in certain certain scenarios. Mark should have been there, but he wasn't because, because of how he approached the Portuguese Grand Prix. This weekend, I maybe have slightly review, re- revised my look at it because we've seen what what it looks like when he's just riding with an extra built-in margin, and it's terrible. Like, the bike is not fast enough to get him into the top 10. It's not worth anything. There are also moments I really like. I really didn't like the Johan Zarco situation. It surprised me how many of his fellow riders were actually on his side there, that you know it was Zarco's fault to have come out of the pit lane at that point, so that Zarco should have anticipated the fact that people were going to be crashing at turn one at the Saxon ring at the start of their effectively qualifying zero laps. I maybe understand that. Maybe. I don't know. Uh, there are also riders, I think it was Zarko himself, who said you probably want to build in a little bit of margin, even if you're on qualifying, when you see somebody on the outside of the corner. And in any case, in any MotoGP session, we have riders on the outside of a corner every single time, basically, on basically everybody's laps. Um, but, you know, a lot more riders saw it from Mark Marcus's point of view than maybe many of our listeners or maybe many of the just of the fans will have expected not to check on him at all because you're a bit mad and a bit rushed is not good it's not good optics but it's also just it's evidence of like, he's completely scrambled 
Uh, and he spent the weekend completely scrambled and razzled. And when he tried to take a step back, there was no speed in it. And when he tried to take a step forward, it threw him into space. Um, so I'm actually, I'm both more and less sympathetic. Uh, it's it's a difficult it's a difficult one to even to look at and to consider because I'm not on the bike. I don't know how hard or easy it is to crash it. But certainly really good riders have been crashing the absolute hell out of that bike over and over and over again this season. Yeah, I mean... The way I say it, Marquez isn't doing anything different whatsoever from what Joan Mir's doing. It's just that Marquez is crashing out of fifth instead of fifteenth. They're they're both having an equally terrible season on that bike. Um, Alex Rins, again, similar. The only rider that's not repeatedly crashing the Honda this year is Takanakagami, and that's because he's admitted that he's not riding the Honda at his full level. So, I don't think anyone on the team. At least anyone on the team that's here is going to be upset with what Mark Marquez is doing because at the end of the day, the guys who are rebuilding his bike have been with Mark Marquez since like 2010 and they know who he is. They know what he is. And and you know, I would imagine that if there's any frustration in that, don't get me wrong, there is frustration in that garage, but it's not directed at Mark Marquez, it's directed at Japan, directly <laughs> yeah. at Japan because they're going to be in the same camp as him. Um, yeah. I mean, as for the thing with Zarco, um, for me, I, I think any rider that was taking the side and saying that, you know, you have to be slow whenever you're coming out of pit lane, that's something that they all say and something that none of them do. <laughs> Anyone that's saying that's a complete hypocrite, to be perfectly honest. Um, I mean, one of the guys that said it then went out and said his fastest lap of the session while the yellow flags were out. So <laughs> if they can't ignore the yellow flags, they can't, they, they, they can't complain about people not paying enough attention to blue flags. Um, it was a recent incident, but a recent incident made worse by the fact that um, the, the pit lane exit is the way that the pit lane exit is here. But I will say that Marquez's actions afterwards would have been a much bigger story had he not went on to have the weekend that he had subsequently because that was pretty damn unsporting. Um, if your bike hits someone and that person is injured, you go and see how they are. And I mean, <laughs> there was people who claimed that, oh, it was too dangerous because it was on the racing line or it was on the track. I mean... 12 hours later, the guy ran across a live racetrack to get back to the pits to get a second bike and go back out again and qualify. And so that that excuse gets zero traction from me as well. Um, the reason he didn't go and see Zarco was pure and simple because he wanted to get back out in a second bike and he didn't really care what state Zarco was in at that point. Well, you, you said people who claim that like, people are Mark Marquez to Spanish media. Well, yeah, that was, essentially. That was his reasoning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. So he made himself look like a... I'm I'm borderline sympathetic to that reasoning, but in that case, stay behind the barrier and wait to see what happens. Yeah. That's that would be my my preference and I think the right the right way to handle it. Instead of legging it back while also having gesticulated at a guy who you just obliterated at massive speed. Even if it wasn't your fault. Even if you foresee the fact that a lot of people on the internet will say that, you know, to have even crashed there, you're a you're a bastard. And you deserve, you know, the death penalty or whatever. Of course, people will say that. But and you know, you might even think that you know, Jan Zarko was dumb for having gone out of the pits at that point. But have some sportsman to sportsman compassion, respect in that moment. I think he knows it wasn't a particularly good look. I think he just in weekend he wasn't in a mindset to particularly care because he was he was fighting a different battle. I, it, I mean, I don't know if it's 
because of the battles that he's fighting or if it's because of other factors like how tough the last three three or four years have been for him but I genuinely think he stopped caring about being the nice guy in MotoGP and there was a while when he genuinely tried really hard to be the nice guy in this championship and to be well liked I think he stopped caring about being liked and he just wants to win now which is actually quite a good thing for the championship as a whole because I don't think it's a bad thing to have someone that's a bit win at all costs but um yeah, I mean, before he left the scene of Zarco's accident, the red flag was out. Yeah. Um, it wasn't like he needed to be anywhere in a massive hurry at that point, and he very easily could have, yeah, could have waited to see how the Frenchman was. I mean, there's also I, another mitigating circumstance that I did think of in the moment and immediately forgot about. There's also, like, he may have been a bit scared because if you rewatch that crash, it was bad for Johan. Yeah, it could have also been so bad for Mark too. It could have been really bad. So I imagine that also put a bit of fear and a bit of anger towards Zarco into him. But yeah, he should have he should have handled it differently. Uh I don't particularly believe that Modic needs a, a wrestling heel. And I don't I don't think Mark is a wrestling heel. I think he's a interesting, compelling character uh who it would be nice if he sometimes curbed some of his more ruthless competitive instincts, but it's also it is part of the draw. And as long as he keeps it within limits of safety and reason, I mean, I'm, I'm fine with it. Don't just ride the index. Seek to outperform it with Fidelity Active ETFs. Learn more at fidelity.com slash active ETFs. Before investing in any exchange-traded fund, you should consider its investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Contact Fidelity for a prospectus, an offering circular, or if available, a summary prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully. While active ETFs offer the potential to outperform an index, these products may more significantly trail an index as compared with passive ETFs. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE, SIPC. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. You know, we should probably talk about some people who actually participated in the German Grand Prix because we have we've we've got nearly halfway through the podcast talk about a bloke who uh, who was kind of on his way out the circuit by the time the race started. I think um, this was a genuinely excellent MotoGP race. The, the sprint was a bit meh, but the Grand Prix I thoroughly enjoyed every second of. Uh, Jorge Martin inflicted a double defeat on Peko Bagnaia this weekend, one that cuts Bagnaia's championship lead to sixteen points. Uh, Martin's got really strong momentum at the moment. And for me, the the best part about this in terms of creating a bit of a narrative for the rest of the season was that 
when Banya was lurking behind Martin for so long, it felt like, oh, this is probably a foregone conclusion. Peko's got the pace. He'll get ahead. He'll pull away. Good effort, Martin, but you know, this is another Peko victory. But Martin fought back, defended like hell, won by 0.064 seconds. This he's, He made a real fight of it, and he might make a fight of this season. What do you guys make of today's battle and, and what it means? Yeah, it's just... it's. Yeah, no disrespect to Jorge Martin, obviously, but it's in MotoGP on this Ducati, you would not back him over 30 laps over Peko Bagnaia. Over 15, absolutely. Over 30, I'm not so sure. And it was, you know, it was it was a closer run thing over 30 than over 15, but he got it done very, very impressively. At the same time, I also I'm gonna continue to, you know, toot my own horn on this one. <laughs> Look, I told you. You, you, did. you uh, did. I told you in the preseason he looked great. He looked like the closest rival to Pekka Banya. He is. And, you know, if we're going and to I, have... And I, if I remember rightly, my phrasing was like, yeah, 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 he'll crash. And then, as I said to you, you two this afternoon before we record this, when did he last crash? Because I, I now can't remember. He's, he's back to proper Martin form. Yeah, I mean, they both will crash again this season. Spoilers. That's, you know, <laughs> that's the two riders that we're dealing with. For, for better and for worse, and usually it is for, for better, for much, much better. They're two very, very quick, excellent riders. Um, so for Martin, it's just crash fewer times, put Peko in positions to crash, and keep keep your wits about you when Peko puts you and other riders put you in position to crash. Uh, we, still, you know, we still need a bigger sample size of Jorge Martin's sustained point scoring, but at the same time, I do think he gets better over the latter half of the season with the circuits, some of the circuits that are coming up. So I think there's genuinely something maybe quite interesting brewing here. Indeed, that's not just me being, you know, knee-jerk over of one weekend, but this weekend does help a lot because there were, you know, there were two duels and there were two races that were supreme in execution. And on both occasions, it wasn't set up by his, you know, qualifying mastery. Both times he started sixth on the grid. And from sixth on the grid, both times he did exactly all the right things he needed to do to win both of those races. Um, so I'm excited. I'm really excited to see how, how that pans out. Uh, it's very nice to have a victory battle with serious championship implications, a lasting victory battle between two riders who we do think can be the two title contenders. That's, that's very nice. I mean, I'm very much of the opinion that <laughs> satellite bikes can't win championships. Uh, um, still? Still. Yeah, I still think Bagnaya has the momentum. Um, I still think that he is going to be the guy to beat. Um, I don't want to say that I don't think Ducati will let Martin win, because I, I don't think they'll do anything to hinder him. There, there certainly won't be team orders, at least until it's much, much, much further down the line than this. And I spoke to Gino Borsoi, the, the Primark team boss, after the race today, and he was, you know, gushing about the level of support they're getting from Ducati and the fact that they're essentially on the same spec of machinery as as uh, Bagnaia is right now. But I think, especially once we go to the overseas races, um, as we normally, like they're normally the races where the factories stretch a lead. And it's because of resource at that point. Mm -hmm. It's because you have more guys crunching numbers. It's because you have more guys looking at data. It's because you've got all of the backroom stuff that you don't necessarily see in a MotoGP weekend going on when the factory or the satellite teams are probably running at slightly fewer staff because they're trying to save a bit of money in the hotels and because you know people are a little bit more tired because their mechanics are flying the economy and not business. And all of those little details all add up. Um, 
in saying that, Martinez writing more impressively than I've ever seen him write, apart from maybe like his Moto3 championship winning season when he looked, especially the second half of it, where he looked this good. Um, but, you know, he, he's learned consistency, which is the thing that he was always missing. He's always been a super fast rider and he's always liked to throw the bike at the gravel trap. Uh, <laughs> having lost that is is good. But, yeah, I think he still has things to learn and I think he, he will soon realize that being in a factory team, people want to be in factory teams for a reason. And it's not because of the, you know, the extra little bit of money you might earn. Yeah. I mean, I think team orders are completely out of the question also because the closest non-Ducati in the standings is 60-something points off. I mean, a, a Desmos Edici rider is going to win the title. I'm I'm fairly confident in saying that. And I suspect the Ducati top brass is also fairly confident in seeing that as it is. Even if both Banyaya and Martin go in injury reserve right now, congratulations on a championship, Johan Zarco. Good <laughs> job. Pizzecki. Yeah, <laughs> there we go. Um, we'll, yeah, we'll, we'll see because I, I also, I think Banyaya just has a bit more performance or you know, the word I use is his performance is a bit more robust, I suspect. But the thing with Martin is that he has tools in his locker to where he can really put the fear in you. And I think that sort of, there will be Saturday mornings where he obliterates the lap record and it's going to make Banya, I think, two or three times more like, that he doesn't doesn't like this very much. Uh, but yeah, at the same time, you know, obviously there is there is going to be a balance between those two teams. And it's maybe also a question of how strong Pramac will be in arguing its case that, you know, hey, we're in the title fight now too. So can you, you know, for the sake of MotoGP and everything else, can you also help us out? to keep our level up. And it's a question of whether it's actually maybe kind of good for Ducati to have a bigger variety of riders fight for the title and to have it go down even maybe more to the wire because that's just a better look than Pecco clinching it with a round to spare. But then, you know, probably I don't think sporting teams really think that way. So, I mean, we'll see. Ultimately, Martin, Jorge Martin, it is in his hands. He can be quick enough to make sure it continues. Uh, One thing just to throw out there um, on the team orders thing that for me fairly conclusively drew a line under the fact that it's not going to happen anytime soon is that Paco Bagnaia can sometimes be a a little bit of an insecure guy when it comes to certain comments. And the fact that he's throwing around jokes about asking Ducati for team orders in the press conference today makes me very, very certain that that's not something he's actually going to do anytime soon. Yeah. Now, I mean, I mean, even last year, when it made so much more sense, he would not publicly call for it. I mean, maybe you know, there was like one or two privately MotoGP captured moments where there was sort of a hint. Publicly, never. It was, you know, it was fine with it. He was ultimately, you know, he trusted Ducati to, to handle it the way they did. And no team order seemed like the purer way for him. Here's just unthinkable. So you can't, you can't in good conscience argue for it. it your riders are one, two, three, four in the championship. Sort it out amongst yourselves. This is it for me. There's there's no reason for Ducati to put team orders in other than to just to be a bit of a hierarchical bastard, really. You know, it's it's yeah. not like last year when uh, Ennio Bastianini getting in Bagnaia's way was hampering Bagnaia hunting down Fabio Quartararo's points lead. Like you say, this is all Ducati. So any reason to say don't attack Pecco is would be to basically say if you're one of our satellites don't bother having any ambitions which is which is not great business really given how important the satellites and that expansion and that cooperation has been to Ducati finding its way back to this dominant position now uh 
Brad Bender's crash today for me ends that topic basically. Yes. Because he was he was the one, I think. I you know, eyeing him up in the championship and looking at him, looking at the points he was able to score, looking at the relentless scoring he was able to bring in, even through the various events that happened to him. Uh in case, you know, KTM's upward mobility continued as much as it did. And obviously, you know, he's still not like a million points behind. But I don't, I don't really see a scenario where he can gain 50 points on two high-performing Ducati riders over the rest of the season. So I think they don't have to worry about that too much. And that's, you know, and that's why you don't have to really worry about orchestrating anything or thinking about anything like that. I mean, if they, look, if they fight for the win at a last lap somewhere else and they come together and both end up in the gravel and a rogue 2022 Aprilia comes through of Raul Fernandez <laughs> to win the race or whatever. Like we saw already, Raul Fernandez, number one on a graphic after the sprint race when lifetiming glitched out. Oh, yeah, uh, the graphic, yeah. Uh, but yeah, I don't, I, don't, I don't think it's a consideration. I, mean, I, I know I've spent like 10 minutes now saying I don't think it's a consideration in 10 different ways, which is great audio content, but I mean, here you go. Um, that, that dodgy Dorna graphic that somehow creeped out during the sprint race with uh, Raul Fernandez listed as P1. Um, we showed it to him after the race and he said, remember this, one day I will be P1 for real, which is a nice little bit of confidence for someone that's really, really struggling at the minute. Um, yeah, I was going to say, that is a while off at the moment, isn't it? It's yeah. it's looked at no, a that's that's a ago. summer break podcast, but yeah. yeah yes. <laughs> um, the, the, the problem with Binder being a title contender is that he's on the second best bike in the championship by a long way and arguably he's on like the eighth best bike in the grid whenever you kind of take the ever struggling Fabio Di Giantonio out of the mix um, and that's always going to be a disadvantage you know this should have been Ducati's worst circuit of the year and the fact that they did what they did today which is a level of dominance I've never seen before in my time watching motorbike race and watching MotoGP uh, means to me that you know he hasn't got a hope elsewhere. Like it's just not the bike's just not going to be good enough at any point to be significantly better than one of six or seven Ducatis. This is something we were debating quite a lot between us as, as the race went on today, and it's it's been a popular topic on on social media as well. This was as crushing as Ducati domination has got so far, and it's actually it's got potentially get more crushing because there was still Jack Miller gamely getting amongst them. And you can certainly see a lot of scenarios this year where all Ducati top eight is genuinely possible. And obviously a lot of people are not keen on that because that is not traditionally how MotoGP has been. That's not how you want any racing series to be, really. I'm kind of on, on the side of the fence that's like, yeah, it's not ideal, but this is not Ducati's fault. It's done a good job. It's got a lot of competitive bikes. It's very fair to its satellites. At least they're letting them fight. Thank goodness there's eight of them out there to make entertaining. You know, let's put the pressure on everyone else to get better and not complain at Ducati for this and just in, enjoy what's unfolding. I, I don't think we're all quite on the same page on that one. Yeah, I basically am. I mean, I'm, I'm there with, with basically everything you said. It's not, you know, remembering German Touring Car Championship, the DTM, it's not like they're taking the mick and completely orchestrating the races with, you know, their eight highest performing bikes and just deciding who finishes where to maximize the points for whom. They're not doing that. It's, you know... They didn't force those satellite teams to take their bikes. Those satellite teams took those bikes because they are very good bikes, excellent bikes that belong in the grid. And ultimately, you know, Formula One comparison, wouldn't F1 be much better right now with eight Red Bulls? Wouldn't that <laughs> rule? That would be awesome. 
I just uh, just imagining that makes me smile, you know, ear to ear. Absolutely delighted. Uh, I don't think Ducati is meaningfully hurting the championship. I'm sorry. Uh, honestly, even with how good Ducati is, the manufacturers are close enough. The, like, I think we're a little bit spoiled by MotoGP's parity to where the disparity within the parity gets quite a strong negative reaction. Okay, eight bikes in the top nine is a bit much. Should have been eight in the top ten if, if Brad stayed on, but also the fact that he fell off showed how hard he had to work to get even get into even third place. But, I, look, I can't, I can't be particularly annoyed or mad. This is not... I don't think this is 1990s Honda... Those Ducatis are possible to pick off. There is reasonable weekend-to-weekend intrigue. And if we want a championship-level intrigue, well, for now, it's just going to have to be between Ducati riders until others figure their stuff out. I don't know what to say. I would not. I would certainly not cap their entries, because if you cap them to two, as Matt pointed out, I don't remember either in this podcast or in our text chat. I'm not sure. But yeah, if, if you cap the entries, well, Banya wins today by 14 seconds. Good. Great. Yeah, I mean... T- take Val's point about imagine F1 if there was eight Red Bulls and flip it and imagine MotoGP with two of these Ducatis and Aenea Bastianini carrying an injury and we'd be like calculating whether or not India is going to get cancelled to see if that determines whether or not Paco Bagnaia wins the championship in Misano. It, he'd be dominating this without them. Absolutely dominating it without them. It, it, so I, I can't blame them for that and then you know the other side of things is that part of this mess is one that the japanese manufacturers have created for themselves in particular the japanese manufacturers by treating their satellite teams pretty rubbishly for years and years and years you know they have treated satellites as customers where ducati have very much pioneered the the whole trend change of treating them like actual partners People want to be treated as partners. People want to be a part of that. And the result is eight bikes in the grid whenever everyone else... Yeah, well, Yamaha simply couldn't be bothered to, you know, do what they needed to try and keep RNF. Um, the Ducati offer looked more more amenable to Cassini than going with Aprilia. And here we are. It's no one's fault. Well, it's no, not Ducati's fault. Yeah. I just realized I misattributed a silent point to Matt. So clearly they are this they are the same person in my head. I was thinking, I was trying to think, was that me? I'm quite I'm quite sleepy this weekend on the MotoGP and F1 weekend, so I might have just ventriloquisted myself in some way, but no that yes, that was that was Simon's calculation there. The flip side, okay, I, I said at the start of this conversation that I'm quite chilled out about this Ducati situation. I am in the moment, I have to say, I'm not thinking this year's a write-off or anything. Longer term I'm a little bit more, this is fine. This is fine right now. This is probably fine for maybe a couple of years even. But if other manufacturers aren't getting back on the pace, this this is, this is does become a problem. And MotoGP got really good in part through its concession rules. But as things stand at the moment, concessions, yeah. no one's anywhere near dropping back to, into concessions at the moment, are they? Um, no, they're... No, I can't think that they are. So it's no one's going to have that kind of leg up. Does something else need to be done to, to give some other teams a bit more of a shot at Ducati? Just, just thinking three or four years down the line even. So I maybe just rethink the concession formula. I mean that that ultimately feels like the the simplest solution here. Just rethink the concession formula and you know, so that just the the six points that you get right now over is it two seasons, six points? I think basically I don't remember how you get it. I think with two wins, but with the amount of races you have in the season, I would I would consider maybe 
making the threshold that you reach to where you no longer get concessions a bit higher. I think actually we we need to go to the concession rules and relook at them significantly because MotoGP has changed since the concession rules were written, and I think the um, you know what the thing is what they once brought the main thing that they once brought was the ability to develop engines mid-season, and I think if you flipped it so that it was now the ability to develop aerodynamics in season, it would be much much more valuable to teams. Um, maybe that's something to look at, you know, because I don't think Yamaha in particular have a problem with the engine right now. If anything, the Honda engine is possibly too powerful. Uh, and what's causing the problems that they're both struggling with is the fact that they, they can't change the aerodynamics packages very quickly or very effectively. So, yeah, maybe something worth considering because, uh, you know, and then the other, just to back up Val's point, no one's getting concessions back this year. You know, uh, Rins kind of screwed Honda, didn't he? By going and winning, the asshole. <laughs> yes. I was about to say, oh, Honda might. And I thought, no, Kota, yeah, they're, they're still screwed. We'll get back to the pod in a moment. But first, a word about our partner, Grammarly. No matter what kind of work you do, how you communicate is key. All those emails, reports and presentations are equally important to the collaboration needed to get things done. And Grammarly can help. Grammarly is your AI writing partner to help you communicate more effectively and efficiently so you can make a bigger impact at work. I know from experience that Grammarly can help you save time on any writing task and ensure you feel confident about what you've produced. In fact, 96% of Grammarly's users report that Grammarly helps them craft more impactful writing, and their tone suggestions can help you navigate even the most difficult work conversations. Make a bigger impact at work with Grammarly. Sign up and download for free at grammarly.com forward slash podcast. That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash podcast. Easier said done. Speaking of uh, aero development as well, we, we had the ironic situation uh, on, on Sunday of having a story up on the race with some riders, Alicia Spagaro and uh, Ralph Fernandez in particular, dismissing MotoGP as being uh, too much like F1. Actually, their, their reasoning was the aero behavior is more like F1. They weren't saying it's as dull as F1 can be specifically, although that was kind of inferred as well. But basically saying MotoGP is boring now. It's entirely decided on Saturday morning in qualifying. You can't have a take. You can't get anywhere. And... Looking at some of the races this year, looking at some of the lack of progress some riders make in those races, I wouldn't say that was an unfair point, but it's slightly belied by the absolutely brilliant racing the Ducati's put on at the front of the field uh, in in the Grand Prix. And actually, every time any time MotoGP riders complain their racing is getting too much like F1, my 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 feeling is always try actually watching an F1 race and then watching one of yours back and yeah, yeah see how you really feel. No, I mean. Look, there's a point there. So I'll, I'll preface all of this by saying there's absolutely a point there. And ideally, you would not have the front tires overheating in pack. You would not. Clearly, there's also, it's much more of a problem for riders who are further in the pack because they get more of the dirty air, more of the temperature at them. So more of an impact. And we're more, <laughs> I'm more inclined to dismiss some of those complaints as just, you know, the complaints of somebody who's not doing very well. 
So I'll, you know, I'll say all of that. And then I'll say, come on, are we, are we watching the same thing? What is, I don't, I don't understand a lot of the boring, like F1, the guy who won was six on the grid both times. He was fourth after the start. He had to make three overtakes. In the sprint, he overtake two, overtook two bikes in one corner. Was it the fault of the dirty air that Jorge Martin had the best pace in the sprint? I know a lot of fans are not very happy with how that race went. I think those fans want in-race balance of performance. Let's just slow up the bike that's three seconds up the road. Let's cut its power. Is that how we make MotoGP great again? I mean, I don't... A lot of this I do not understand. I know it can be better. I would like it to be better. But to say it's, you know, boring, processional, whatever... I don't, I don't understand. Am I watching the same thing? Am I like taking some pills before races and then there's, I'm seeing pretty colors go on and they're changing positions <laughs> and it's eventful. It's also the Saxon ring. You don't overtake very well here. It's not going to be Assen. It's not going to be Phillip Islands. The problem is that what we're seeing now is so today's race was a, a bit of an exception to the rule. I will give you that. Uh, Sunday's race kind of put a pin in the balloon of the argument a little bit. But 2016, 2017, 2018, 2019, we were seeing races decided pretty regularly on the last lap. Last corner moves, you know, the whole, that whole saga of first Marquez versus Davizioso and then Quadraro versus Marquez and all those big jewels they used to have at the end of races were spectacular. And now all of that action has moved to the first few laps of the race instead of the last few laps because it all has to be kind of done before the tyre overheats and before you start losing, before your pressure starts spiking. Um, and, and I actually went back and looked at every race this season before writing that feature. And, and it is borne out by the fact that um, until Sunday... Um, I don't think there, there'd been one other, there'd been one sprint race, the very first race of the year, the very first sprint at Portimao was the only race where the podium was decided in the last three laps. Every other race was, you know, the podium was set in stone with three laps to go, which is kind of tedious compared to what we were used to. I was going to say, yeah, the, the important caveat compared to what we were yeah, yeah, yeah. What no, we it's, it's, we, we we shouldn't be having this conversation in the caveat of what Formula One's like. We should be having this in the conver- in, the, in the, the context of what MotoGP was like in 2019, 2018. Yeah, this, this, that's that, but that's important as well. That's that's a specific narrow period of of MotoGP. I mean, I, I should say I find Formula One really interesting. I do enjoy Formula One on a kind of fascinating and intrigue level. Objectively, it's not as entertaining on a racing level as MotoGP. But I can remember plenty of what we'd think of as like alien era MotoGP races where really nothing happened particularly yeah 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 and it was safe yeah. for the big personalities yeah. and, and the arguments they had making it more interesting but really it was Valentino Rossi yeah. Jorge Lorenzo Casey Stone and Danny Pedrosa a few seconds yeah. between them after the first few laps like you say yeah. second half of 2010s got really fun concession rules as they really took effect standard ECU and stuff it got really really competitive an awful lot of races decided right at the end this what you've got now is not as good as that was still better than most other things out there and in history i think i think it's it's i think it's closer to that than it is to early 2010s uh four factory bikes on the grid and everybody else needn't bother type of formula it doesn't mean we shouldn't improve it i just a lot of the reaction seems just a, a teeny tiny bit overblown to me 
and I'm being sarcastic here. I think it's absurdly overblown. That's that's my feeling. Me, the big corporate defender of MotoGP action, sellout Val. But you know, sometimes we also have to be at least a little bit thankful for the action we have. My problems with modern MotoGP are much more safety based than they are action based. Even when the races aren't so good, when they're decided early, well, firstly much easier for me to write the race report. So that's obviously <laughs> the most important consideration always, and I appreciate it greatly. But secondly, also, sometimes the fastest rider hits the front right away, and then he pulls away, and there's nothing you can do about that in race, and the arrow has nothing to do with it. And I think we've seen that plenty of plenty of times. And even sometimes when it's hard to overtake, that, to me, in some races, that has added to the, to the enjoyment. The fact that Luca Marini was able to soak up the pressure for so much of the sprint race, I don't think ruined that sprint race because if those riders got past him, I mean, they would have just got past him and settled into those positions. Instead, it, you know, there was intrigue. And in the end, it's that Luca Marini rolling roadblock that allowed Johan Zarco to lunge at Brad Binder in the turn 11 move. Whether, whether we particularly like that move or not is a, a different debate entirely. I'll just throw in quickly just to end that debate. It was great. It shouldn't have been penalized. Everything was fine. <laughs> it wasn't penalized. So yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's good. Yeah. Everyone's happy. The, the, I think the fundamental problem with all this is that we hit a sweet spot from 2017 onwards. And then it got slightly worse. And unlike most other championships and most other eras, when things get slightly worse and you're not really quite sure why or what did it, there's a very, very large and obvious block on the front of every bike that implies why this has happened. Because the bikes look very different from how they looked in 2016 or 2017, because now they've got massive wings that a lot of people don't like anyway, visually. So I think that's that's maybe the, the sort of the crux of this whole matter is that it's not just that something has changed, but people can see what has changed, and that's what's driving it. The, the good news is that you know we've been sort of optimistic, hopeful for a while that the introduction of a new Michelin front tire would go some way in, in fixing this issue by giving the riders a bit more stability and being a bit more uh, sort of a bit more um, comfortable with the tire range, the pressure range changing. And it sounds now like uh, former World Superbike champion, BT Sport pundit, World Endurance, current World Endurance rider, Sylvain Gantoli, is on Michelin testing duties um, and has been riding a, a stock, well, a, a, a CBR 1000 superbike with MotoGP front suspension and carbon brakes around Michelin's test track to try and put some miles on what should arrive at the Misano test and hopefully, you know, be the be the sort of solution to all of these problems. Because that's the fundamental reason for all of these issues is that bike development has surpassed tire technology for the probably for the first time ever really, in terms of, you know, big jumps and, and frozen development. Yeah, it's a completely random observation, but if I were MotoGP and Suzuki was negotiating its exit, I'd probably agree that maybe one of the bikes sticks around instead of going to the Hamamatsu shredder and becomes the test bike for Michelin that let's say I believe we said this at the time yeah I probably did I mean we say the same thing over and over again every episode for like 10, 10 hours straight let's throw in something we haven't talked about then just to to finish things off we're going to talk about a 2024 theme 
involving one of today's key protagonists. Jorge Martin, it's emerged. We just saw we thought the rider market was kind of settled. Jorge Martin might have the option to be promoted to a factory Ducati next year after all in, at uh, Ennio Bastianini's expense. How is the first question? And second question is, should it happen? Big shout out to Simon for standing this up with a, with a significant source because, I mean, I think I first heard it in one of the publicly available interviews uh, a month ago or something like that. And when it when somebody senior from Ducati, I think it was Paolo Schiabatti, said that they need to wait and see what happens with Enea's injury recovery before they take 2024 decisions, which blew my mind in the moment because I was like, he's he's under contract. What are you, what are you going to is it a career-ending injury? What are you going to... Why do you need to... And now we know why. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess it was something of a a sop to rather unhappy Jorge Martin when it was announced that it would be an Bastianini and not him that got the factory seat for 2023, that they worked in some sort of a clause to both contracts that said, we can swap you around if we want. Um, probably with Ducati never expecting to use it because Bastianini was the guy that came into the season as the you know the, the sort of secondary title protagonist to Peko Bagnaia. Now here we are where one of them has been injured, the other has been winning races. And suddenly there's a big question to be asked about what happens next. And um, yeah, someone that's familiar with the situation confirmed to me today that there was a, a clause in the contract that allowed it to happen um, I'm glad I'm not the person having to make the decision because I'm genuinely not sure which way I'd go at this point in the year I mean uh, for me it's really easy, you don't do it <laughs> so that's, that's, that's how I see it um, for me it's the easiest question anybody in Ducati management should ever, ever face you don't do it, you don't have to do it do not do it. Uh, <laughs> honestly, it is it is barely, like even if it's in there, you don't do it. It's if it's not there, you don't do it. You don't think about it. I know Ducati are the kings of the one year option, whatever. Don't do it. Don't think about it. <laughs> and Abbastinini has been injured all season. You, there is no way to sell this well. The, uh, s somebody, some people will have watched and seen that maybe an A isn't adapting to the GP twenty three as well as Jorge Martin did through the preseason testing. That maybe, you know, going forward in the season, it's entirely possible that even when he's back to his normal full fitness and race fitness and sort of catches up with the knowledge base of the GP23 bike, he still will not be as fast as Jorge Martinez, which is not ideal because in that situation, of course, you would like Jorge Martin in the factory Ducati team and Jorge Martin would feel entitled to be in that factory team. I don't care. You don't do it. Do not do it. He has been injured all season. This is... you. If, if you're taking a decision the summer break, you cannot take this decision. It looks awful. It will look awful to every rider you could ever bring into your factory team. And maybe Ducati is in a position where it doesn't really matter what looks awful to riders because there will always be top-line people who would love to ride one of its bikes. I mean, it could go get Mark right now probably if Mark was a free agent. Just don't do it. You don't have to do it. I, I know I've said the same line over and over and over again, but Ducati is in a position of strength here and it has every single reason to go to Jorge Martin and say, you've been great. Uh, if you, you know, if you finish season like this, if you fight for the championship this season, whatever, then early next year we meet, we talk and you probably get the factory seat. Maybe he won't believe them after what happened the previous time. 
I don't care. Don't do it. You don't have to do it. He doesn't have anywhere else to go. He will stay on your bike. If you tell him to stay in Prama colors, he will do it because he's not going to go ride a Yamaha M1. Are you crazy? Nobody will do that. He will stay. So don't don't insult your other works guy who's just recovering from injury right now. Keep him where he is. I, I feel like I don't know. I feel, feel like this quite passionately be a about thing. this one. No, it's just I, I don't I don't understand how it came up. I don't under- <laughs> I didn't understand it the first time I heard it. And again, this is coming from somebody who believes that there's a very good chance Jorge Martinez is just quicker on the GP23 than Enea Bastianini. I don't care. Don't do it. You don't have to so do it. So in conclusion, Val's a little bit on the fence, but in the balance of probabilities, he thinks <laughs> yeah, they should yeah, do I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> uh, no, like maybe maybe they should do it. I don't the, know. Uh, for, for, for me, there's, there's, there's three rounds over the course of six weeks, whenever the championship resumes from the summer break. And then the fourth round is Mizano. There is no reason to make this decision before a big announcement at your home race in Mizano. There are three races where the Ducati goes really, really well because we have Silverstone, we have Barcelona, and we have the Red Bull Ring. Give it to them for those three rounds. By that point, Bastianini can't complain about his shoulder because it'll have been like four and a half years since he broke it. And, you know, he, he, he will, joking aside, he will have had another five weeks of full fitness to recover um he said today after the race that he felt like tomorrow was tomorrow monday will be the first day post race where he's been able to train instead of just lying in his bed um so his recovery is there um yeah give them those three races help make it really interesting and tell them exactly what you're going to do and say the top point scorer at the end of the three races gets it why not make it entertaining just what martin needs when he's trying to put together a title bid as well isn't it i mean that's exactly what he hated last season he was like they pitted us against one another so i mean this time if he comes out on top i guess he won't mind i don't i don't think they should i don't think they should you should not do it. Yeah, you've mentioned that. No, I don't think they should also. If if they do do it, which they should not, I don't think they should. They should name specific targets because I think it is important to recognize the experience and data deficit that Enea Bastianini is operating out of. But yeah, I, I, you know, he it would be good if he showed something more going forward. Obviously, as his recovery continues, I don't think he had a bad weekend. I think he was fine. I mean, if you account for the injury, I think it was perfectly reasonable he's still not the Enea Bastianini they promoted into the works team but I I don't know this would be doing that would be the ultimate vote of no confidence wouldn't it so soon I just I it's it it would be the equivalent of Honda replacing Alex Marquez in their factory team without giving him a single race exactly the point I was about to make it would be worse than that because the logic behind Alex Marquez getting that factory seat was never very strong in the first place. Whereas yes, it would yeah, Bast- but yeah, it would be worse Bastianini than this. Yes, getting I think it's very it logical. Be, yeah. I actually yeah, think this is a very very smart thing for Ducati to have in the contract, even if it was a little bit of an accidental apology to Martin that it, that um, it never thought it'd have to action. It was quite a close decision between them. Bastianini did have an amazing season last year, but he was on a very well-sorted bike, no pressure expectation. Martin did crash away a lot of opportunities last season, but he's shown so much talent too. Keep your options slightly open when, when you can. That's, that, I think that's really wise. And yes, Bastianini's season has been wrecked by the shoulder injury. We haven't seen anything yet, but he wasn't getting there in testing, was he? I think I, I, I feel like unless we see a proper progression curve 
from Bastion over these next, well, we've got Assen to go, but soon after the summer break, like you say, that little run of races, he, I think he has to show clearly that he's getting to grips with this bike when fully fit at that point. I actually expect he will, and this will become a non-conversation, or maybe, maybe not quite a non-conversation, because Martin's form is pretty awesome. You talked about a small sample set for Martin as if we were just basing it on this weekend. Last four weekends, he has not finished below fourth in the eight races those four race weekends have included. He's won two sprints, one Grand Prix, barely been off the podium in that time. That's that's consistently awesome form on insta what's still a satellite team. So I think Ducati has got a real dilemma coming up, whether it's for 2024 or 2025. Right now it's 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 a real puzzle. And I know the Pramac bike is a works bike in Pramac colours, and Ducati's not losing anything necessarily, but like Simon said earlier, a factory team is that little step up still in resources, in organization. If further down the line in your opponents sorry in ego ego as well yeah true but i'm thinking like further down the line if ducati gets opposition again one day which it will you want you'll be prepared for the opposition and having the guy who might be your quickest rider firmly established in your factory team and all its processes and actually you know ready to hit the ground running when say yamaha or ktm are ready to fight for a title that's got to be better than having to kind of cope with the shift if you've just put him in the, on on the works ride from Prague at that point. I think this is really, really wise, although it might have to come down to a coin toss. I mean, they should they should just do the uh, Honda 2010s, early 2010s thing and just <laughs> add a ninth Ducati, <laughs> third works bike painted red. Rivals are going to love that. Just just paint the Pramac bike red and tell Martin it's a factory bike. <laughs> I think, yeah, it'll work. Um, it's a good clause to have. I agree. And I, I want to say that, you know, for for all of my doubts over how good Enea's immediate ceiling is with the GB23, we haven't seen a situation where he's able to deploy his main strength. We've seen him half fit in two full-length races, and he's been more fit this weekend, but it's just not a track he's very good at. He was not good here last year. He's actually been better this year than last year. Um but, you know, it's, I, get, I agree. It's a good clause to have. It's smart. It's smart for Red Bull to have, you know, the decision of whether to put a driver in Red Bull or Alpha Tauri at any moment's notice, whenever it wants. That's, you know, that's smart. That's good business. It's a good clause to have. Don't do it. You do not have to do it. <laughs> okay. I think we and Ducati, if you're listening, get the message. Do not make that change. Um, we've got one more race to go before a fairly enormous summer break. Um this weekend's been brilliant. It's given us a load more storylines, positive and negative. I'm really excited to see what Aston offers. I'm really excited for the potential of going to the summer break with a new championship leader. Um, well, that would take a Banyai disaster. But to even even say a change of championship leader is possible sounds really refreshing after the, the way things seem to be going. Uh, thank you very much for your company, listeners, over this race weekend. We'll catch up with you straight after Aston for the latest twists in MotoGP 2023. See you then. The Athletic. Guys, I think I forgot to mention that they shouldn't swap Astinini and, and Martin. <laughs>